0: Hello and welcome to Maths on the Move, the podcast from plus.maths.org.
1: I'm Marianne Freiberger. And I'm Rachel Thomas. Deep in the bowels of the Centre for Mathematical Sciences in Cambridge, there's a tank containing lots of little green algae. Yes, that's algae, those green and sometimes very slimy things you see anywhere where there's water like on the rocks in the sea or in the river or even in the tank of your coffee machine if you haven't cleaned it properly.
0: And the algae in the maths department are called volvocales, and they aren't there because someone forgot to clean but because they are very special. Some of these volvocales are made out of just a single cell and they have two little hair-like filaments for arms and they perform a breaststroke just like humans do and we have a movie of one of them on our website at plus.maths.org, and it does look really, really cute. There are other volvocales which have four legs, which mimic the trot, canter, and the gallop of a horse. And yet others have hundreds of arms and perform a sort of Hawaiian dance to propel themselves forward. Now, the reason why this is special, other than being cute, is that these volvocales don't have anything resembling a brain. So how do they manage to get their filaments to synchronize in a way that allows them to perform coordinated motions worthy of a dressage horse? In this podcast we will give you an answer to this question, and we will also find out why this answer is interesting not just for algae, but for human biology, and how it sheds life on the evolutionary process that eventually resulted in us. And as usual we will explain some related maths in one minute.
2: So the Volvocales is a group of green algae that spans from a single cell organism called chlamydomonas which is about a tenth of a hair in diameter uh, to organisms that have many many cells tens of thousands and can be several millimeters across.
0: That was Ray Goldstein, Schlumberger professor of complex systems at Cambridge and the owner of the algae.
2: And biologists have recognized since the late 1890s that uh, these organisms, because they exist now, and we don't have to look in the fossil record, are very interesting to study the evolution of multicellularity, essentially trying to ask and answer the question of why is it that single cell organisms evolve to become larger and more complex? So they have a very clear place in biology for that reason. They're also very interesting because Uh, They are photosynthetic, and they have cilia. They have uh, hair-like appendages that allow them to swim. And these cilia, or flagella, as they're called when they're on the organism, are very much like the cilia in our lungs. So there's a physiological reason as well. But from the point of view of physics and mathematics, they have a beautiful high degree of symmetry. Uh, They have a fascinating means of locomotion. And so they're actually models to study many problems in biological physics and fluid mechanics. So put all together, there are multipurpose organisms that make everyone happy.
1: So as well as making everyone happy, what's interesting from the point of view of human physiology, as Ray said, is that inside of our body contains little hair-like filaments whose function depend on them being able to synchronize.
2: Again, flagella, as they're called when they're on the organism, are essentially like cilia, which are found everywhere throughout the human body and most vertebrates. And wherever you find those hair-like appendages, uh, such as in our respiratory system, they're constantly pushing fluid around. And they exist in very large numbers, kind of carpets of cilia. And wherever you look, they're highly organized into either uniform kind of rower-like beating or things called metachronal waves, where there's a slight shift of the beat positioned from one to the next, so it looks like a Mexican wave in a stadium.
1: So, given the fact they don't have a brain, what is behind this synchrony? That's what we will find out next.
0: To keep things simple, let's start with the simplest member of the vulvokales family, the single-celled organism that has just two flagella, and is the one that does the breaststroke. It's called Chlamydomonas.
2: So the first thing to say is that um, rather than trying to study a piece of our trachea or something like that, um, these organisms are very easy to grow in the lab. They're very simple. Uh, organisms. And if you look at uh, Chlamydomonas, for instance, which I have a little model of here, one of my postdocs made for me. So it's got a spherical body that's about 10 microns in diameter, so that's about a tenth of a human hair in diameter. And it has these two flagella that are uh, oppositely oriented like this, and it beats in a breaststroke. And um, there is uh, uh, anchoring of the flagella in the cell body, and there are filamentary connections across that are known to play an important role.
0: To really look at this tiny chlamydomonas organism, the team used a technique that comes from in vitro fertilization. So they used glass capillaries that have tiny little tips to hold the organism, like you would hold an egg in IVF. So rather than having to chase the organism around the water tank, the researchers could watch it while it was being held in one place, beating its little flagella in vain. They also used high-speed video microscopy to observe these tiny swimmers.
1: Equipped with this highly ingenious experimental setup, Goldstein and his team were able to test a hypothesis about how the two flagella end up doing this synchronised breaststroke. The idea was that perhaps it's all down to the interaction between the water and the flagella alone. The water simply pushes the flagella around and the flagella react by pushing the water in turn. And eventually some sort of rhythmic flow is created which helps the flagella move in synchrony. To test this idea, first you need a mathematical model that tells you how the flagella would behave if it really is only the water that they're responding to. And luckily there is such a neat model that was devised by German scientists in 2008. In the model, the flagella, instead of being represented by a a wriggly line, they're represented by a small sphere that moves around an elliptical orbit, which is just how your elbows move around an ellipse-like shape when you're swimming the breaststroke. You can calculate the fluid mechanics of spheres moving like this quite easily. Then you turn a mathematical crank in your formula and amazingly you end up with an equation that was developed decades ago by someone called Robert Adler to describe the coupled oscillators that appear in electrical engineering. It's using this mathematical model that Goldstein and his team show that the interaction between the two flagella was of a magnitude that's consistent with the idea that they were coupled together using fluid mechanics. This was the first experimental support for the idea that fluid flow alone can cause these flagella to synchronise.
0: So now you might stop there, because you've now got some evidence that fluid alone can get those two flagella to synchronise. But Goldstein and his colleagues didn't stop there. Because only because something is consistent with some hypothesis, it doesn't mean that the hypothesis is true. Because over the centuries and even millennia that people have been doing medicine and biology, they've come up with all kinds of hypotheses about the human body or animal bodies that matched observations but turned out to be false. So we need to go a little bit further than that. And this is why Goldstein and his team did what biologists do in these kind of situations. They turned to a mutant organism, which is very similar to the original organism, but different in one particular and very clearly defined way. And they were surprised.
2: And then, began to look at certain mutants, certain organisms that have a deficiency of one sort or another. And one of them is a mutant in which the uh, internal biochemical connections or filamentary connections between the bases of the flagella are absent. And then it turns out almost uh, 100% of the time that there's no synchrony at all observed between the two flagella. And the only cases in which there is, is when they're very, very close together. And that led us to think that actually it's not quite as simple as just fluid-mechanical coupling, that probably there are elastic filaments playing a role in the coupling.
0: So the experiment with the mutant showed that the motion of the fluid around the cell isn't enough to make the flagella synchronize. Because in the mutant, which didn't have any connections within the cell between the flagella, the synchrony didn't happen. This shows that the connection must play a role too. And in fact, Goldstein and his team found a more striking result when they looked at cells that had three or four or more flagella.
2: That's right. In fact, uh, one of the really striking discoveries made by uh, one of my students was that um, if, you, if you look at, say, the, the four-flagellated one, it, the flagella are arranged two like this and two perpendicular. And the patterns of beats uh, are one-to-one correspondence to terrestrial quadrupeds like horses. You can have different kinds of gallops and canters and all of these things. And the fact that there is uh, a lot of study of the precise cross connections inside the cells allowed us to see whether the symmetry of the beating reflected the symmetry of the connections, and it does.
1: So, here's a really interesting connection to the mathematics of symmetry. The different goats of a horse, say, and as we've seen of these algae, show up symmetries. For example, when a horse is walking or trotting, there's an obvious sort of left-right symmetry, as the legs on the left perform the same motion as the legs on the right, only shifted along in time. Now, for animals other than algae, including humans, there is also a question of how they can perform reasonably complicated gaits like this without thinking about it. And there's a whole branch of science called gate analysis, which investigates how the symmetry of these gates is reflected in the symmetry within the networks of nerve cells that control the gates. And gate analysis has important applications in both medicine but also in robotics. So, returning to our algae, the work with mutants showed that the connections within the cell between the filaments also play a role in the synchronization.
2: So, the picture that we finally have is that, yes, fluid-mechanical interactions can synchronize flagella, they play a role, but the internal elastic connections, which actually the biologists knew about for a long time, play an equally important role and it's a combination of these two things.
0: Okay, so now we know that a delicate balance of fluid mechanics and the connections within the volucales between its filaments is necessary to get the flagella to synchronize. What, if anything, does this tell us about the cilia in our own bodies?
2: So, in, in our body, there are situations in which one has uh, what are called multiciliated cells, which are large cells with many, many cilia very close together and then separated by a long distance to the next one like that. And so, what we have come to understand is that the synchrony that's observed within one of these multiciliated cells is hydrodynamically driven, most likely, uh, as is the connection, the synchrony observed between it and the next one. But when one has, as in say, fallopian tubes or elsewhere in one's body, uh, these carpets of cilia, there can also be cross connections through the bases. And so it's always a combination of the two that are going on.
0: So using techniques from IVF, fluid mechanics, an equation from electrical engineering and the maths of symmetry, Goldstein and his team have been able to give us an idea of how the cilia in our bodies manage to synchronize to keep us alive every day. And it's all down to algae.
1: Thanks, Aggie! But hang on, there's another question too. We said at the beginning of this podcast that volvocales and their flagella tell us something about how complex organisms such as ourselves have evolved from single-celled organisms like Chlamydomonas. It turns out that it's all about our need to eat and also our need to get rid of what's left over after our meals have been digested.
2: Yes, uh, the important thing to understand about this question of evolution from single to multicellularity is that there are both costs and benefits to being larger. So an organism that is larger made of more cells uh, may for instance swim faster, it can escape predators more easily. Uh, But there are metabolic costs to the scaffolding as well as the control systems that the organism has to have in order to steer, in order to build itself. So the question is always, is it worth it? And of course, predation is one important uh, feature, but another is simply nutrient uptake and waste removal. And in that case, we were able to study the volvocales because they're spherical and it's such a simple geometry, we can actually calculate things like the rate at which nutrients uh, are absorbed or waste products are removed. And there what we see is that as one gets to larger and larger organisms, had they no flagella and no ability to stir the fluid, they would have reached a bottleneck where their metabolic needs would have exceeded what could come in from the surroundings by diffusion. But with the stirring that comes from all of these cilia, they can bypass that bottleneck and be larger than they would otherwise be. So it taught us a lesson that the fluid mechanical flows play a role in this evolution.
1: we have now come to the point in the podcast where we explain some maths in just one minute. Ray Goldstein talked about volvicales being spherical and this reminded us of a mathematical problem which according to legend was first solved by the legendary queen Dido and led to the founding of ancient Carthage. It's called the isoperimetric problem. So Marianne, I challenge you to tell us about this isoparametric problem in just one minute.
0: Alright. Now, whether the legendary Queen Dido really existed isn't clear, but here is the story. Denied by her brother and the killer of her husband, a share of the throne of the ancient Phoenician city of Tyre, Dido convinced her brother's servants and some senators to flee with her across the sea in boats laden with her husband's gold. And after a brief stop in Cyprus, the boats continued to the northern coast of Africa, landing in modern-day Tunisia. Dido requested from the locals a small piece of land to rest on, only for a little while, and only as big as could be surrounded by the leather from a single ox hide. Sure, the locals probably thought, we can spare such a trifling bit of land. Now, neither history nor legend recalls who wielded the knife, but Dido arranged to have the oxide cut into very thin strips which tied together were long enough to surround the entire hill. The city of Carthage was founded on this hill, which was named after the oxide, and the civilization that flourished here became a major center of culture and trade for over 600 years until its destruction, although the city lives on today as a suburb of Tunis. Now celebrated in many poems and paintings, Queen Dido has been given more durable fame by mathematicians, who have named the following problem after her. Given a choice from all closed curves in the plane of equal perimeter, which encloses the largest area. And that's what's called the isoperimetric problem, and the answer is a circle. You can quite easily convince yourself of this by playing with a rubber band. If you stretch out the band to be long and narrow, the area it encloses will be small, But as you make it more and more circular, the area it encloses becomes larger. Dido seems to have been aware of this when she laid the oxide strip out in a circular arc, but a complete mathematical proof of the isoperometric problem is tricky and it didn't arrive until the 19th century. And you won't be surprised to hear that there's also an analogous result in three dimensions. Out of all closed surfaces with a given surface area, the sphere is the one that encloses the largest volume.
1: That's great. Thank you for explaining the isoperimetric problem to us and giving the answer. The answer explains quite a lot of the shapes that we see in nature. Imagine, for example, a shoal of fish that wants to minimize the opportunities for predators to attack then that shoal will occupy a certain volume and it's best to arrange this in a shape that minimizes the surface area that the predator can attack. So you're looking for a surface that has the smallest area enclosing a given volume, which by the answer to the isoperimetric problem is a sphere. And that explains why fish arrange themselves in spherical bait balls when predators arrive. Conversely, if you're a tree that draws moisture and nutrients from the air, then you want to maximize your surface area interfacing with the atmosphere. So you want to be the opposite of spherical in that you want to be branchy with lots of wiggly squiggly leaf surfaces. And if you're an animal seeking to absorb as much oxygen as possible through your lungs, then this is most effectively done by maximizing the amount of tubing that can be fitted into the lungs volumes so as to maximize its surface interface with oxygen molecules. And if you simply want to dry yourself after getting out of the shower, then a towel that has lots of surface is best. So towels tend to be made of knotted and irregular surfaces. Then they possess much more surface per unit volume than if they were just smooth.
0: This takes us to the end of this podcast. If you would like to find out more about Ray Goldstein's work, then go to our website, plus.maths.org, and search for Goldstein.
1: Thanks for listening, and bye-bye for now.